welcome inside the Paris Sea Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. This is a special live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Comedy on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. And we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And my guest is a troubadour in his own right, a cat who, who hails from uh, from Canada and was Tor- and from Toronto, and uh, it was steeped in the in in all different scenes that were going on at that time. The the the, the the, the, the jazz scene, the, the, the Yonge Street scene, the folk poet scene, and most importantly, the low-down, dirty blues scene. And uh, it's, it's just been, it's been an honor to connect with him on new media, and now I get a chance to talk to him on, in the real time. Neil Merriweather, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you very much. Glad to be on it. Hey, uh, you talk a little bit about the kind of gigs or what kind of gig you got in, in Vegas right now? I basically moved here. Uh, I moved here about three and a half years ago. Um, permanently. Uh, we, we, uh, got a house way back when, and my wife and I retired pretty much from the jobs that we had. I never quit music, but I was doing photography and art for the Bureau of Engineering for LA. And she worked for a company that, did all of the uh, outreach programs for the city of LA. So when she finally retired, we moved to our house here in Vegas permanently. Unfortunately, she got cancer and only lasted the first year. So I'm kind of finding my legs here in Vegas, but we get out a wing to the house where I spend a lot of time every day recording new rock music. Um, and I, like I said, I never stop playing music. So. I'm still doing it here at this house. I love Vegas because uh, of the shows, and you get to see almost anybody in the world that's still performing. They come through here, and, and it's just a great place to live, at least for me. I'm sorry to hear about your wife. I mean, I, can you talk about uh, what she meant to you as far as uh, you know supporting you? I'm not sure if she was with you when you started your career, but just... Um I don't know. We spend a lot of our time in marriage uh, looking at the things, at least in in a lot of modern day marriages, you're uh, me being one of them. You focus on the things that the other person doesn't bring to the table as opposed to what they do bring to the table. And uh, then just like that, they're gone. Um, what did your wife mean to your uh, to your career uh, musically? Well, when we moved, uh, when I found her and we, we became an item and got married, we were living in a house down in Playa del Rey up on the bluffs above the ocean. It was like a nice place to be a creative person. But I didn't have the means. I kind of drifted away from the so-called music business. It just started to get worse and worse at the time. The last thing I had done was uh, Rita Ford, her first album, and got her a great deal as a manager. I played on it. I produced the album, and then I got the typical, uh, you know, door slammed in my face by her, the artist, and and by other people that surrounded her after I made the deal. So I kind of had a bad taste in my mouth. And being in Playa del Rey outside of the music scene, more or less, uh, you know, I, I kind of, like, drifted further away from it. When my wife came into the picture... She saw that I wasn't really happy without music in my life, so she inherited some money from an aunt that died, and 
she put the money into uh, letting me take part of the house and build a studio back then. And I continued working with Dusty Watts and the drummer that I worked with with Lita Ford. And I found Jamie Herndon. After many years, uh, he was with the Space Rangers on the Kryptonite album. He was my keyboard guy, second guitar guy. And he had done, uh, he had gone off when we broke up to work with Nick Gilder. He did Hot Child in the City and all of Nick's recordings for uh, some years after the Space Rangers broke up. But I managed to find him and, uh, you know, we would get together, Dusty, Jamie, and I, and uh, record under the banner 100 Watt Head. Uh, we have an album out there on on the stream, um, and uh, I, I make little videos of some of the things we've done. I have a new album ready to go with the three of us on it, 100 Watt Head 2, T-O-O. It's, it's, but this time it's got Neil Merriweather on it. Um, and I plan on streaming that. My wife, getting back to your question, my wife was the person that kept me going. She, you know, by giving mm -hmm. me the means to build this studio, um, I just, you know, kept working on music. Uh, we got a kids' TV show, Jamie and I, and we did like 48 songs for uh, Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad and another one called Tattooed Teenage Alien Fighters for Beverly Hills. Two kid shows that were partially animated and we did all the battle music i mean full songs 48 full songs for geek entertainment that also kept my studio going and my wife uh like i said worked for public outreach for the city of la and and i got drawn into doing photography and art for the bureau of engineering i did photography for the brochures which also helped me sustain continue continuing to make music so I really never stopped. It's you know, except for a short period of time prior to meeting my wife. But um, you know, you, you I'm, know what I'm I want to. No, I mean it's it, it's it, it's it's profound. And uh, I, you know, I, here's the thing. I, I mean, I just want to break it down. You know, you can you talk about how your ears grew the most in. I mean, you we came in with the uh, the Star Rider seventy five. Uh, hard rock, right? I mean, it's uh, it's it, more spacey rock. They space rock, yeah. No rock. space, space yeah, music. Psych rock. So yes, yeah, no, and, yeah. and and I, but I'm interested when you go back to your roots, if you could talk about how your ears grew in the unamplified settings because you had to listen for the upright bass or maybe the Fender bass or you know you had to hear what the drummer was playing before rock music fusion and you know all this stuff amped up everything oh to, yeah can you talk about some of the early experiences of, for, were you a yorkville like where just break down and riff on where you fit into that whole scene sure well you know i was a typical young guy back then and and when i went to high school i had not been expu exposed to any kind of live music except for a carnival that would come once a year to uh, a park in toronto and we would go in there with a couple of Indian guys up on stage with a drummer, two electric guitars, you know, playing three-chord rock stuff behind the barker to get people into a show in the carnival. Jeez. And I thought, holy smoke, that's, a, that's an electric guitar. That's what it sounds like. And then my first assembly at high school, uh, as a treat for all the new students and for the student body, 
um, the York Memorial, I went to York Memorial Collegiate, all girls band came on stage, but what they were made up of was guys from, from local bands that were at the, that went to the school dressed up as girls, you know, as a, as a funny thing. And they played the first real live, you know, band thing I ever saw. And that's when I was bitten. I had to put a band together. You know, I thought, you know, I always had records and, uh, you know, I liked Elvis. I, I liked a lot of people, but once I started putting a band together, I, I drifted towards the blues and there was a blues shop in LA where all of the local guys would go to get the new blues records and things. So my first exposure to bass was Willie Dixon, of course, which was upright bass with, with Muddy Waters and all the people he backed up and all the great songs he wrote, which the Stones, you know, tapped into too. So when the when the Beatles hit, that changed a little bit of our ears. But we grew up back in Toronto playing more blues and 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 R and B oriented music. I mean, as a, as a teenager, I I wasn't old enough to drink. But one of my best friends was David Clayton Thomas's bass player, Scott Richards, and oh. he turned me on to going down to uh, to the Concord Tavern on Bloor Street, where the band. They became the band. The, 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 this, I, you know, see, this is what I want to tell you before. I, I don't mean to cut you off. Is this was what one reason I reached out to you is I was going back and reading one of my transcriptions from my interviews, and I saw you talk about these guys, the Squires, and I want you to talk about this Squires. Oh, yeah. That was I was I was cracking up reading that stuff because that I I'm not right. sure even. Whatever, just riff on that, man. Because you know what, Danko. Because okay. here's so you. Yeah. I just want to be clear. You you moved to Toronto from L.A. or you were born in Toronto? No, no, I was I was born in Winnipeg, but they took me to Toronto when I was a baby, so I was raised in Toronto. Okay, so the, so so, so I'm a Toronto boy. Oh, you're a Toronto boy, and because because Robbie Robbie's from Cabbage Town, which is a very rough area. Uh, so was my drummer in Merriweather. Coffee Hall was from Cabbage Town. Exactly. So you're, but you're, 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 you're Toronto cat, but just go, just riff on the Squires for, I want to hear about this. This is classic stuff. All right. Okay. So Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks were one of the best bands in town and you know, they played the bar circumstance. So on Saturday afternoons, the band themselves without Ronnie would play and they'd fence off an area of the Concord Tavern, this little tavern on Bloor Street. So pe- so the guys that wanted to see them that were underage and, and couldn't drink would stand behind this fenced-off area and sip on, on soda pop and watch these guys do a show mm-hmm. on Saturday afternoons. They did it regularly. Then when they left Ronnie Hawkins, they became the Canadian Squires. They were on Apex Records, so was Ronnie, I believe. Um, and uh, they... Form the Can- they became the Canadian Squires. The, the Hawks from Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks became the Canadian Squires. So they were then coming out onto the circuit out of the bars. And I remember going to a gig in Norville, Ontario at uh, a Legion Hall to see them play. And it was the band. It was Ronnie Hawkins' Hawks. But for a short period of time before Dylan came and grabbed them for his band, they were the Canadian Squires. And uh, that was Rick Danko, Robbie Robertson, Garth Hudson, Richard Manuel, the whole, you know, and, and uh, the whole, all the guys that, be, that were in the band were the Canadian Squires. They did one record. I'm looking at uh, it right here, Apex man. Records. I'm looking, I'm, I mean, they're, they're, right. it's, uh, it looks like it's on, uh, it's got some, like, let's see here. There's uh, the Canadian Squires, 
on Wear, capital W-A-R-E records, produced by Henry Glover, Leave Me Alone. Oh, and, uh, right. And, uh, uh, uh. Uh, uh, uh. That's right. That's it. Those right. Are, yeah. So, that, that was on Apex Records when I got it, when I first got oh, it. Oh, yeah. So okay. I guess Apex. The, the, the Apex. Reissue or, Unbelievable. Right. I, I mean, where were you... And and were you already gigging at that time? You were close with these cats, like you. Yeah, were... I had a, I had a band a band called uh, the Just Us, <laughs> and we traveled around our little van and we played the local Southern Ontario circuit along with Sparrow, who became Steppenwolf. Sure. Um, you know, uh, then my band, then I I found Rick Bell. We played a gig with uh, with uh, Richie Knight and the Midnights at some pavilion or something and i really liked his <laughs> piano playing so after the show i said i'm going to revamp our band and form a real good band would you like to be in it and he said yes so when we added rick bell to just us and changed a couple of members we became a, a, a band i called the trip and uh we worked our way up into being the in the top two the mandela and us and we wound up being managed by Raphael markowitz you know the soupy sales of canada before he became a manager he was randy dandy and you know so we got to play the circuit with with all kinds of people that went on to be another famous band and uh you know even even years later when i was in hollywood in, in the hollywood hills in a house i was living in a, there i got to make, meet rick danko again from from my childhood seeing him play I you know I loved his playing and and uh I gave him that record and he he ran straight to Malibu to to Robbie Robertson and Robbie <laughs> freaked out he couldn't believe anybody even had the record and you know and Rick brought it back but later on I, I went on their bus when when the band started playing again not with Robbie no but, this is you were with but, the Kate uh, brothers Rick Bell was it yeah, Rick Bell was in the band. Rick Bell. Be- so, that. wow. Rick Bell. I don't know. Because I know when they reunited in 83, it was the Kate Brothers from Arkansas. But this was this was more like mid-80s? Um, yeah. And uh, Rick Bell, who was in the trip with me, wound up taking Richard Manuel, the late Richard Manuel's place. Oh, okay. And so this was after he... kind of looked like yeah. Robbie playing yeah. guitar. But the rest of the band was intact. Garth and, and, and uh, Rick Danko. What did you and leave on helm? Yeah, you know what's interesting. I I always found it interesting because I, I, um, I look at it and I say, Danko, I'll I'll ask you to expound on it. But he stopped playing the bass after a while. Like he was not playing when the band re reunited in '83. They, they he was wanting to play an acoustic guitar, which was fascinating to me. Um, and really? yeah, well, I mean, it was, yeah, because Ron Ehoff from the, from the Arkansas was playing bass and I just wanted you to, I wanted you to talk about when, when, when you saw Danko, what it was about, was it his time feel? Was it the soul? Can you talk? Because he wasn't like, you know, this isn't like, you know, this wasn't like jazz fusion, like Stanley Clark kind of stuff. I mean, he was, it was more like. Can you just talk about what what it was that got you off about his playing and how it influenced you, if at all? It was it was uniquely his playing. Right. He was a he played quirky. I mean, he wasn't a standard bass player when he applied his talent to the bass, and it, and, it, and you could tell it was Rick Danko. I mean, when you listen to the band, his timing and and his and his his choice of notes, playing with a great drummer, Levon Helm, it was a great rhythm section. 
I, you know, what else can I say about the guy? But he was one of my early influences. Well, I want to, I, to sing and play bass is not an easy thing. McCartney makes it look easy, and there are a few other people that can do it. But to to sing and play bass is one of the reasons I think that Rick's style developed the way it was, and can, you know his 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 bass playing along with his vocals. How did you learn to sing and play bass? Um, I was in uh, the Just Us, and uh, the bass player we had decided to quit and go with Bobby Chris and the Imperials, a local band in Toronto, for $50 more a gig. And we had a gig coming up two weeks later, opening for the Birds at Varsity Stadium. So um, one night I was at the at one of the village uh, clubs, the Night Owl. It was run by an English gentleman called Harry. I can't remember his last name, but he was a guy from England, and he had some musical history back in London early days. And he was a character. And one night Wayne walked in and a group called JB and the Playboys were playing the, on the little stage at the Night Owl. And he walked right in front of them and I was coming the other way and I just clocked them. I mean, it's the first time I ever punched anybody. Wow. And I think I gave him a black eye because of him quitting and leaving us stranded. I was like angry and I was like a young teenage punk. And that was a stupid thing to do. But Harry then dragged me into his office and said, why are you, you know, carrying on this way? You're so talented. You can play bass. You don't have to worry about it. You got two weeks before that gig. You learned to play bass. So I did. I, I made a cardboard graph to where the notes were, you know, like a chart, the length of the neck of, of, a, of a precision bass that I rented. And... Um, I learned where the notes were, and then I worked with Stan Endersby, our guitar player, on some of the songs. And by the time we got the gig with the with the Birds at Varsity Stadium, I was playing bass in the band. And of course, I you know once I I started feeling my oats, I kind of overplayed in those days. I was a crazy guy, kind of like a Tim Bogart, and like a cac <laughs> like a cactus kind of feel to it with Carmen a, a piece. And well, that. more like vanilla fudge. Fud, know, that's where, yeah, fudge. That's where, that, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where where a simple note or two would do the job, I would play maybe six or seven. You know, and um, how did you? Yeah, so after me, a while, did you, you, learn, you you learn to play more with the foot and and not show off as much. But back then, I I was good enough to show off pretty quickly, and uh, got a name for myself, and. Um, you know, n never stop playing bass after that. Well, I, you know, I was hoping you could talk to to cats out there uh, about y that maybe it looks harder than it is. People talk about just playing, you know, lead guitar, rhythm guitar, and and uh, and singing as well, or playing, of course, like Levon playing drums and singing. But with the bass, why is it so challenging to sing and play at the same time? It's just really, uh, you know, with a guitar, you're just kind of like strumming. With a bass, you got to put notes into into a song. And, you know, how many notes are there behind the, the, a couple of words do you have to play? And, and it's just a matter of, of learning to apply independence to your hand and, you know, along with singing to it. It's, it's a... It's, it's, that's, that makes it difficult. Some people can't do it. You know, after a while, you learn to choose your notes and you learn to move with the lyrics of the song and what you're singing. And McCartney is a prime example of, of playing just the right bass notes behind his vocals. 
and that's what makes him one of my favorite bass players. Has he been? It, do you do you think you know, that he is? It, is there something to be said? And Danko too, Rick Danko. Well, of course, but I'm thinking about McCartney, especially back, like with the Beatles' first couple of Beatles albums weren't great, and then all of a sudden they exploded. Did that have to do with it? Do you think? I mean, aside from the fact that their maybe their songs got a little better and they started eating a lot of acid, I mean, do you think that uh, his his ability to where, you know where to place the notes and it was a quality over quantity. I think George Martin. George Martin helped him with that. I think George Martin, you know, said you should maybe do these notes. And George was able to being a, a, a cellist or no, he was a, a bassoon player. I think classical bassoon <laughs> in wow. his past. He yeah he um, you know but he could play piano so he was able to to uh, guide Paul in some of the some of the ways the bass should be applied to a, a song part. And Paul got better because Paul was actually a guitar player in the Silver Beatles. And, and it was Cliff, uh, what was his last name? Cliff was the bass player for them. I am not and a Beatles aficionado. I didn't, Amber. this is mind blowing to me. So the, you're telling me he wasn't, yeah, he, so Paul, yeah. Cliff, Cliff quit the band and then he died of a brain tumor, unfortunately. He was with John's, one of John's closest friends. And uh, McCartney had to switch over to bass. So I could see why he picked the Hofner because of the string closeness. It was more like a guitar as far as how close the strings were together and the, and the smallness of the neck. But, uh, you know, he got better and better and better as, as he, you know, assumed his role as the bass player in the Beatles. But I think George Martin had a lot to do with uh, helping to arrange parts. And then Paul just got more brilliant as he went along he, he got into his piano playing and he got into a lot of arrangement ideas i just think his bass playing is, is some of the best in popular music and uh, did you learn did you learn from like from like because you were flashing you know you were you know you know in your you know just starting out you were you know playing you were overplaying i mean danko did not overplay is that you feel that's a fair no. set he, I mean, he, no. yeah but he played a, a unique style that was all his own. The notes he would he chose for something I would not have chose, or, or the feel he put behind it I may not have felt. Right. That's what makes him, you know, an original guy. You know, I toned down, you know, my abilities as I honed them and I started to understand music more. Back in those days, we were doing R and B. You know, like knock on wood, we would do our own arrangement of it, and you know, a lot of the. R&B and blues things back in the time. So there was room to throw throw a lot of licks into things and, and make them your own. But as I as I awkwardly got into songwriting, starting with the first Meriwether album and stumbling, and, and, you know, and finally getting to where I felt like I could write, uh, my bass playing and the patterns I chose were, were basically... Um, good for my my vocals, what I was doing for my vocals. So I had to fit the bass patterns into the songs I was writing and, and, and allow them to be simple enough compared to my early days so I could sing to them. You know, and I think that goes for any bass player, any singing bass player. And once you get to know your way around the neck, you don't look anymore, you know exactly where your hand's going. And, and you know, that just comes with, with practice and, and, and more gigging. And, you know, for any bass player, it's the same. You know, what Jocko Pistorius and a lot of those people 
got into fusion and jazz, but when they started, they were they were playing probably basic R and B, you know, rooted blues kind of kind of patterns. I'm talking to Neil Merriweather here on the, yeah no I mean I, this is you're you're articulating this incredibly well I, I did you I mean there was um, I believe it was called the Continental uh, Jazz Club um, I could be wrong about that there Amos Garrett talked about um, going to see uh, uh, some a lot of jazz in Toronto did you were you a Yorkville uh, I mean, because that. I mean, on, on that side, it was. Oh like... yeah, I played every club in Yorkville. In fact, I even played the uh, the Riverboat with uh, with a band that I put together that was supposed to be the new Rick James Minerbirds band, and the guitar player I picked was Bruce Colburn. Wow. So we wound up ju- doing Bruce Colburn stuff and wound up at the Riverboat. Even we opened for Wilson Pickett and opened for for. Um, Roy Arbison and you know. Well, I was going to say. I mean, cool. I, you're. You, this is interesting because I, 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 this morning I just would. I, I was transcribing my interview with with David Clayton Thomas, and uh, it turns out that John Lee Hooker wound up at one of these clubs, and uh, uh, David was playing R and B blues licks, and Hooker said, "Hey man, um, if you get me a ride to New York City, I, you know, I'll get you a gig." And that's how David got. Right. That's how David got to the West Village, you know, or he got down to Greenwich Village, and. Uh, you know, you came on my radar many years ago with this double LP with uh, Miller and uh, Jack, uh, uh, not uh, Howard Roberts, Charlie Muscle White, yeah, Howard, Roberts, Howard Roberts, and freaking Howard Fantastic fucking Roberts, guy. man. I'm like, so I'm like, how did Neil Merriweather connect? How did you how did you come to the United States? Um, after I left the Bruce Colburn thing, I couldn't do the folk music stuff anymore and and, and I, I just didn't like it and I wanted to form a band and, and, and what it was was Bruce Colburn and Neil Young were in the Minor Birds and I wound up in one of the versions of the Minor Birds with Rick James and Bruce Colburn uh, was a friend and he came back to Toronto um, at one point it might have been when he got his first bus down there for some weed that's a funny story, but I won't get into it. Yeah. He was back in Toronto and he was saying, you guys got to get down there. And Jimmy Livingston was my best friend. And, and he was in the trip with me and, and uh, or, or late just us. And he um, he was good friends with Bruce, too, because I think they played in the, in the original Minor Birds together um, with Rick. And uh, so when Bruce came back to Toronto, we all hung out. And Bruce is talking about L.A. and how great it is. And he's got friends at Topanga and... And uh, then we met June Nelson, who was uh, um, the head of Warner's Reprise. Um, She was his secretary for a while, Mo Austin. And she had a poem, and we were all sitting around, and I said, I'm going to write a song to this poem. And it all kind of worked out. I formed a band, got Eddie back, uh, my keyboard guy I worked with for years in all my early bands. And we found this guitar player um, in Hamilton. We went to see him play with some act and we liked him. He was Hendrix-like a little bit, so we grabbed him. And Coffee Hall, Jimmy found him. He was working at the Paul Robson School of Percussion in Toronto, and he was 18, and he was he could read the Morello book. I mean, he was jazz-oriented. Yeah, right. He was double-jointed hands. and So we, we formed this band, and uh, I named it after the poem that June Nelson had wrote called Heather Merriweather and the song I turned it into. And that was a, one of two songs we cut at Arc Records up there on, on some time with, with uh, 
the engineer let us have some free time and we cut these two things and he gave us the uh the reel the reel tape and that was our demo to go to la and they're with and uh, the drummer coffee hall who his name was gary paul hall but rehearsing in my grandma's basement the house i was raised in he would drink all her coffee just drink <laughs> coffee all day during rehearsals go up and make instant coffee and stuff so she called him coffee because that she couldn't remember his name but he was always drinking coffee and that's how the name stuck so anyway we all got into his brother's uh 1959 Chevy hardtop Impala, and we just decided to drive to LA and take take um, Bruce Bruce up on his uh, his contacts, and which we did, and we wound up living in Topanga at a folk singer's house called Linda Stevens, and uh, got to meet a lot of people, a lot of people that were in the you know in bands around. Well, it was a Can Heat was up Hall. there at the time. Who else was up there? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I stayed in. Uh, in Susan and John Bon Giovanni's house at, at the foot of this driveway where the rest of the band was at Steve at Linda Stevens's house. I stayed with them. And I think for a, a little spell, John played bass with them for a, a while. And she was the Susie cream cheese that was in the mothers of invention song. Susie cream cheese. What's got into you? It was Susan Bon Giovanni. <laughs> so it was like, Holy crap. All of these things that, you know, I heard about or I've heard the records or, you know, it was like being in like musical paradise living in Topanga. You know, I got to meet Stephen Stills and that's another story. But but uh, a lot of the people that were in bands like John Dunsmore, uh, the, uh, the drummer for the Doors, he showed up at our first gig. We played this little club called Big Pink and um, all these people were you know, sprinkled through the audience in this little club, and we were going, "Holy crap! We, these people are all in these bands that are already making it, and here we are, these these new kids from Toronto." But eventually, um, we went on to um, get a deal with. We played the whiskey with Chicago Transit Authority, and out of that gig, we got our uh, deal with Capital. Unfortunately, Jimmy fell along the way uh, into uh, just having a good time in Topanga and going to the beach and hanging out with Linda Stevens and not coming to rehearsals and goofing off. So I had to get, then get back into taking over all the vocals. So by the time we did do that whiskey date and got signed to Capitol, the, the band was four piece. Um, it was called Heather Merriweather, but at times people would say, but where's Heather? You know, you know, we thought it was cool because Alice Cooper and all that stuff. But uh, when we signed to Capitol Records, it was Heather Merriweather. And then one day I went into the tower to look at the artwork for the first album. And when I came downstairs, there was Linda Ronstadt and she was waiting for her producer to show up. So we sat on the front steps of Capitol and talked about what we were doing and our new deals with Capitol. And she was like, the cutest little thing and, and really a nice person. And when Nick Vinay, her producer, started walking down the street and she saw him, she jumped up and she reached her hand out and shook my hand and said, it was great talking to you, Neil Merriweather. Great meeting you. And I thought, Neil Merriweather? So I ran upstairs and, and Robert Nielsen Lilly became Neil Merriweather. And that's how I started. All right, so you're for, what, what, was your, what was your original name? Robert Nielsen Lilly. Uh, I went as Bobby Nielsen when the Just Us, when we did a TV show, I, I had to do it solo. 
And uh, so they introduced me as Bobby Nielsen. I thought I didn't like the Lily thing for some reason. I dig. And then later on, Dwight Twilly came out, and I thought, no, Lily would have been okay, <laughs> you know. But it was Linda Ronstadt that called me Neil Merriweather, and it, and it just rang a bell. Bing, that's who I am, and I ran up and never looked back. I, you know, could you could, could you as, as best you can step back uh, and look at you know at the time you had. Taj and Jesse Ed Davis, you had, you know, Mahal, John Mayall Blues, Blues Crusade, you had Can Heat. How did, how, in what way were you guys, how did, what were you, how were you different? I mean, why did you stand out to Capitol to get a record deal? I mean, back in that time, it didn't matter if you were, I remember talking to David Garibaldi, the drummer for Tower of Power, and, you know, back when he was first starting really getting going, people would come up and say, wow, you, man, you sounded great. You sounded just like blah blah blah, and and he immediately wanted to slit his wrists because that he right. didn't want to sound like anybody. So how did you guys sound different from all those other cats? Even though we grew up as youngsters, you know, playing R and B and blues, uh, we were more and more influenced, of course, by the Beatles. Hmm. And so, in what, in what we, way though? In what? In what? Because I mean, in melodies, 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 and not just three chord changes. Right, right. You know, I right. mean, sure, everybody does a three, four chord change. I mean, almost every song in history that was a hit is like the same four chords in a different array or a different pattern. And, and, you know, but what we what we did it was my first attempt to write. You know, and our in our demos that we cut and brought to L.A., that song, Heather Merriweather, was very, very psychedelically, you know, commercial, beatle kind of thing. It had time changes and stuff in it. And the other thing was uh, called Little Man, and that had uh, chromatic boom-bams in it and all these percussion things that Coffee played, which made it more rhythmic, yeah. and it chugged along. And it was different. It didn't sound like, you know, standard blues or R&B like we all raised with. So when we went down there, that demo kind of, and, and the songs we, we put together kind of like launched me into into trying to do different things. So the first album, I, I listened to the first Meriwether album, and there are people out there that love some of the songs. And, and personally, I don't understand, because as I became a better writer, and I understood how to put better lyrics together and better changes together. I look back at that and it, to me, it's, it's Neil, Neil, the amateur, but the band was an amateur. The band was capable of playing great, any kind of change, any kind of feeling. And that's why we were different. What we did didn't sound like any standard thing you heard. We were, we were like quirky, you know, we had a quirky, different sound. In fact, after we had signed Capitol Records, uh, there was this guy that was one of the head guys at A&M. A &M. Um, he, um, he found me somehow, through, you know, and he, I went down to the studio. He was recording uh, We've Only Just Begun with Paul Williams. Wow. And, but it was for the Crocker Bank commercial. It hadn't been done by the Carpenters yet. Paul had written it was a song but they were putting in this Crocker Band commercial and they were cutting the actual commercial. So I'm standing in the control room and uh, Larry Marks was the guy, the producer, and, and he had said, oh, I'm glad I found you. I, I got a hold of your demo and it is amazing. I want you guys to come to A&M and we'd already signed the Capitol. So it was that quirky music that turned A&R ears around, but it wasn't standard. 
But the sad thing about all of those days were um, back then the record industry was an honest place. It was like when they signed you, they signed you for seven years and they couldn't drop you. The contract was for seven years, seven albums over the seven years, and the budgets would increase. And unless you broke up or left or did something stupid, like I eventually did, and, and like left the deal, you had a deal. And Steve Miller stuck to his deal at Capitol. He signed the same deal as we did. And he, he took it right to the seven years and put all the albums out he did over that seven-year period. And, uh, you know, we broke up. And as a matter of fact, it was like a week before we were supposed to work with John Mayo. I had a couple of work gigs coming up. I didn't even remember that until uh, Ed Roth had sent me a newspaper clipping showing that we were supposed to be playing with the John Mayall Blues Breakers or something. Mm. You know, small world. Well, I mean, this is why. So I mean, but I mean, would the budgets increase if you had the two questions, two part question. to our deal? Sure. But I mean, like for instance, like I mean, you know, Miller with Ben Sidron, they were writing quote unquote pop radio type hits. Were you? Would your budget increase based on the radio play you got, or was it just already No, built? no, no. It was a contract. It was baked it was into a the cake. It was a seven-year contract oh, that geez. was negotiated from day one. So I want to break. I want to break. Oh, this is so important. Break, I mean, you talk, what was in this guaranteed seven-year deal? Because I'm talking to, like, the most, you know, I mean, <laughs> people say today, you know, why don't you run to the corner? I'll give you 100 bucks. They'll do it. I mean, it's just – and this right. was a contract – can you just talk specifically about what was guaranteed within that seven-year pack? Well, first of all, the A&R people back then were music-oriented. They were not lawyers. Right. That's they weren't bean-counters, the yeah. Right. But yeah. So, so the deals back then, if they found something they wanted, they, they would sign a seven-year deal. And no, Steve didn't have radio hits. He, he didn't have he, – he wasn't making the money back on his first seven years with Capitol. I saw him the night he finished the Joker album, and it was and his contract was over. I was in the studio uh, as a favor from Maury Lathow, the vice president of Capitol, gave me some free time at Capitol to cut some stuff with my band Space Rangers years later, and uh, seven years later to be exact. And Steve was like really, you know, he was tired. He was always going to have him come in and play a little harp on something. And uh, he said, man, I'm so tired. I just finished the, my last album for Capitol, and and I think he had just split up with his wife. And he said, I'm just going to go to Hawaii and lay on a beach. I'm done. I'm fried. He wow. says, it's over. Wow. And he was like really down. And Capital then, seeing that it was seven years that they'd given him a budget and advances or whatever over a seven-year period, said, either we let this expire and we lose all of this or we make this freaking album happen. So they put a little bit of extra effort in it. Of course, the extra effort, wasn't that needed because the Joker just was a great song. It was just the perfect song for head cases and, and spaced out people and, <laughs> and people that just like a just like a familiar chord change with some great lyrics. So the thing started getting multiple airplay and they resigned Steve for a million dollars unrecoupable. He negotiated to get negotiated his new deal to get all his stuff back after five years or something. So he owns everything he ever did. But because that album took off and they re-signed him, uh, he was able to, you know, it paid off. He stuck his seven years out. He didn't leave. A couple of people in his band changed here and there. And he, um, he just did it. I, like an idiot, 
you know, um, allowed my temper and the guitar player's temper to get in the way, and I left Merriweather, went on to RCA to do another little jam on with Charlie Musselwhite and Barry Goldberg, and then got signed to, to uh, RCA as Merriweather and Carrie, my girlfriend at the time. And I and to be able to do that deal with RCA, I had to give up my deal with Capital, which is the stupidest thing I ever did because I had a deal that was a guaranteed seven years, and uh, back then, like I said, it was run by A and R people and it was taken over by lawyers. What the lawyers did was they flipped it. They flipped it where the label gets the option up to seven years to keep picking you up, but if they didn't do anything with your first album, uh, they could let you go. But then there was a time span where you couldn't go re-sign with somebody uh, because they had you in this grip for maybe six months in their contracts. So you couldn't go sign with somebody and keep your thing going because if you did, they would then try and, you know, they would sue the other company or they would, you know, screw you over. And it screwed a lot of bands over. These lawyers that took over the A&R had no ears. They would hire these young punks that thought that they knew music to be their ears at A&R departments. And these lawyers just wrecked the business for talent. So consequently, over the years, you got the same run-of-the-mill stuff. Oh, this is making it now. Let's look for something that sounds like this. Right. Now what do you Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's that, what did it. I that's mean, it was. It. It, is, it, is, is, is it fair to say that it was like? I mean, you know, you could go through a, a list of all the peeps we've already been, you know, talking about. Uh, everybody from you know Densmore to uh, Bruce Springsteen, Steve Miller. You know, uh, the idea is that you know uh, the labels stuck it out and helped cultivate those artists so that they could become, you know, better. They could find their voice, and now it's yeah, become. And, and it- yeah, and in some cases, the, the, the labels had to, because even when the lawyers took over, they couldn't dismantle the seven-year contract. So in spite of the idiots that took over A&R, if those contracts were signed before they got there, they, could, they couldn't stop it. So some of those acts managed to, to slide along on, on their deal, you know, and... and well, no, what, what I was trying through. to get at is I that... I mean, if you look at... The, the, here's my point. I, I just... My, 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 what... I remember talking to a cat uh, manager, Richard Loren, who uh, was Liberace, uh, um, and then also uh, very involved with The Doors and also The Grateful Dead. And he just said that, you know, the the bean counters and the upper brass were like, they, th- you guys were making money for them. That's all they cared about. It's when they actually got yeah. involved with the actual application of making music is when it went, went way south, right? I mean, that's when they started. Yeah, yeah. That- there were some formulas back in the early '60s, like like one of the recent things that I, that uh, you know that I I was looking at. Um, I just seen them last weekend. Uh, what were they called? The Grassroots. Uh huh. The Grassroots was P.F. Sloan and and uh, sure. Uh, and what was his name? Barry, Steve Barry. They were two writers, and and they were working with. Uh, What's his face? Dunhill Records. Uh, Carol King's manager, who came out of publishing. Jerry uh, Goffin, not yeah, Jerry sure. Goffin. The guy that sits at the Laker games with with uh, David Geffen. You know, what's his name? No, no. Geffen came out of a. a he was a, a stock boy. He's like 
guy at, at a label and worked his way up through the ranks to become, he saw how it worked and, and he worked his way up to become David Geffen. But he started off as, as like a little stock guy at a label or something from from the stories that, that uh, were circulating around among music people. Wow. That's how he worked. He just worked hard and learned the secrets and worked his way up to become who he was. Um, who was I thinking of? It was the, and he, and he let, uh, it doesn't matter. Sure. The, the point is, is back then there were formulas. There, there were writers that were putting hits, uh, hits together, and there, there was the Wrecking Crew, you know, and and that band was behind even Beach Boy stuff and most of the hits of the day, and they were the band behind the Grassroots and the two writers, P.F. Sloan and and uh, and and Steve Berry, uh, they wrote the songs and then if you look at the grassroots history they went through so many changes and so many people the only guy that goes back to i think 1982 in the band is dusty the guitar player but none of the original guys are there the name goes on but the reason i bring it up is there was a formula back then that some people did subscribe to and then there was the guys that broke through that were good enough to be their own bands and they got signed to those long deals, and if they stayed together, they could they could probably come out of it with some kind of history or some kind of success. Um, too many kids, and like we were, you know, didn't realize that things were going to flip around. And we had such confidence in personal little egotistical opinions of ourselves as youngsters, you know, like, you know, never thinking of dying or anything, you know. We could do what we wanted to do and everything, but, but we didn't notice that, that that these lawyer guys were flipping the whole thing around and the contracts you get signed to were in their favor and not yours anymore. And I think that's what poisoned the business. Can you point pinpoint that some acts that had potential yeah. should have should have given shouldn't been given should have been given the time to materialize and mature, you know. Did, um, did you it wasn't did, anymore. What was the, can you pinpoint a year when that really started to go? Like when that started Uh yeah. Uh, I think it was 71. I signed that deal with, uh, with two great music people. Um, man, my mind, Dick Moreland and Gary Usher were the A&R for, for RCA. RCA wasn't getting a lot of success on FM radio and FM radio was really like the spearhead of, of the new music, you know, not AM radio. AM radio would just pick up the 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 stuff that was being squeezed on the air by the money behind labels and it was like a lot of that stuff was uh, was that formula stuff but when when real bands started breaking through and making their own music on a and m um, from a and m to f m radio dick Moreland and gary usher the a and r guys in, in l a for r c a who had got hired were the guys that wanted to break r c a into that market I signed a deal based on these two guys because they were real music guys. Dick came out of radio and Gary Usher was a producer. I think he produced Can He, as a matter of fact, earlier. And uh, I love those guys. They were like me. They were like the hippie guys, the music people, the music lovers, the people that appreciated music. And then all of a sudden I go in one day and there's this new guy there, some, some Australian or English guy. Don Grierson, he's all, all of a sudden the new guy, and they're gone. And I walk into his office. He wants to meet Meriwether and Carrie. So we go in there, 
And he, he picks up a stack of records that Dick or, or Gary had on the desk. And one of them was the jam album we had just done for RCA with Charlie Musswhite and Barry Goldberg. He goes, this is all old trash to me. And he throws it in the garbage. And it's one of our albums. My God. He didn't even look at it. That's what kind of ignorance took over the music industry. And then he starts talking about himself and what he's going to do for us. And then, the, then they dumped the president at the time and grabbed this guy that was at Epic that Lynn had been signed to that was a jerk. And he became the head of, of the whole thing at RCA. And I watched it change overnight before my very eyes. And this guy says, no, no, we'll fly to New York. You meet the new staff. When I started to complain as one of those young upstarts, you know, this is not what we signed to. This is not right. You know, these guys were great, blah, blah, blah. They said, they, we'll fly you to New York. So they fly me and Lynn Carey to New York, first class. We go to the RCA Tower, and we go to meet these new people that are going to promote our album. And one of them was a pregnant woman. She was head of promotion, and she couldn't keep her faculties together. She'd get mad at some things that I suggested maybe that we should do to promote this new duo, you know. And, and she started, like, mouthing off. And then I started complaining about what had happened, uh, which m I might have mentioned the new head guy that used to be at Epic. And so he comes down, and he pulls me out of some meeting, and he takes me in the home and says, what do you want, my job? And I said, no, the young upstart mouthpiece that I was. I said, no, how about a release? I don't know how far they were going to take Mary with her and Carrie, but, but I started seeing the slow to disintegration from the good to the bad to quote one of my lyrics of that music industry by these idiots getting in in places where there were actual music lovers getting kicked out and these guys were coming in to chop up the pie and to make more money and to to egotistically pick who they thought was going to happen same thing happened with Clyde Davis at Columbia with Jimmy Gersio Jimmy Gersio took in the first Chicago Transit Authority album, Jimmy was producing Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and Blood, Sweat, and Tears had that amazing first album with David Clayton Thomas, you know, it was a big hit. So he was able to use stalling the second Blood, Sweat, and Tears album to force Clive Davis to put out CTA as a double album. He says, I'm not putting this out as a double album. Who are these guys? So he was forced to do it by a music guy. And, of course, then Clive took all the bows for CTA success, for Chicago's success. But he was a lawyer, and he was trying to push things his way, and only because of that little blackmailing ability that Gersio had, because he was stalling, he could stall the Blood, Sweat, and Tears album that they wanted out there to keep making money, was he able to force Chicago Transit Authority out there as a double album, which, you know, the rest is history. That album broke, you know, major for them. But if it was Cl if it was up to Clyde Davis, it wouldn't have come out that way. That's what changed the business. Lawyers running things and, and money and, like you could say, bean counters versus people that really cared about music and, and, and you know, innovation and new sounds. And that all went down the drain in favor of just, making money and, and their egos. I mean, some of these A&R people I, I would walk into offices years later to talk to, they were frustrated ex-musicians that were, were hired by the lawyer head of A&R guys to front for them to pick and choose. And, uh, you know, if you could play them something great, 
And the better it was, the more they were against it because it wasn't them. The egos started to clash. I mean, it was, it was crazy. I mean, the business was just a business. It wasn't, you know, a venue for music anymore. It was a, it was just a business and run by morons. And I could get into more stories that personally affected me, even involving promotion people at labels and their particular personal egos getting involved. It's just, it, it was a crazy thing. And it was a sad thing. Fortunately for me, I was able to wheel and deal and keep writing in, in the majority of my stuff. I think I put out 16 albums in between 1969 and 1975. You know, right. Bands. Yeah. Are you still, could and, you, I mean, just before we wrap up set one here with Neil Merriweather, it's just been profound. Um, you just talk a little bit about uh, your uh, working relationship and uh, professional relationship with with, uh, with Barry Goldberg. I mean, you guys have been working together for. I mean, Barry was. I mean, he was on the, on the loose with Bloomfield, looking for the original blues masters in Chicago. But um, how did you link with him, and, and what has he meant to to your musical career? Well, Barry, you know, Barry was, uh, my, my connection with Barry was in the, in the early 70s, and it was the two jam albums. How Barry got involved in the first one was our manager, Meriwether's manager, the guy we chose to manage us, uh, was a guy called Maury Alexander. He was from Chicago, and he had managed Steve Miller and Barry with the Miller Goldberg Blues Band. Now, because he had management on them, he knew how to reach them. He said, and he was working with Barry um, on some label. I think I think he got a deal with Kent, where he was A and R for Kent, right. this manager. And Barry put out an album called Two Jews Blues that Maury Alexander, like I think, co-produced. So he was managing Barry also. So to get Barry on on the Jam album was not that difficult, and I I okayed it. Um, and uh, but the the funny thing was, they he had a a very bad breakup with Steve Miller when they when they broke up in Chicago a couple of years before the Miller Goldberg Blues Band. So when uh, when we brought Steve in, also Maury Alexander was able to do that because he had a publishing contract with Steve, and Steve wanted out of it. So in a way, there was a you know a trade off to get Steve in. Steve didn't know us; we didn't know Steve. We were signed to the same label, but Steve came into the picture. Uh, through Maury Alexander also. Um, I wanted Howard Roberts because I was a big fan of the Howard Roberts Quartet. Who was in the quartet? Was it Mike Wofford? Who was in that quartet? I, I couldn't really tell you. I just remember my guitar player back in Just Us Band, uh, he wound up going with the boss men with David Clayton Thomas, and he was in the version of the Minor Birds that we signed to Motown with Rick James. Uh, Bill wow. Ross... Um, his his sister was engaged to the bass player in L.A. Uh, for the Howard Roberts Quartet. So he he got the records, and we'd sit there and listen to Howard play. And, you know, I was just blown away by Howard Roberts. So when, when uh, I was thinking about people I'd like to have on that jam album, that's, I suggested, can we get Howard Roberts? And Howard was also a member of the local Wrecking Crew Session, Wrecking Crew session Band that backed up almost everybody's record. 
including good vibrations. And, you know, Carol Kay was the bass player, and then Joe Osborne at times. Uh, and Glenn Campbell was one of the guitar players. But Howard Roberts was the guy I wanted on that album. And he was the most wonderful guy. I loved that guy, and he could just play. Anyway, Barry, that's how I first knew Barry. And then when RCA reached out and wanted a jam album of our own, that, what I was telling you about, the, the Dick Moreland and Gary Usher, they they uh, got uh, to me through Maury, uh, Alexander, and, and I thought, well, who could we get? So let's get Charlie Musselwhite again, who Maury was managing back then also, and let's get Barry. So I worked with Barry again on that. Working with Barry was fun. He'd come with song ideas, and we were able to, to work with Barry. He's, he's a great keyboard guy. He's just a nice guy. But my... Uh, my years to come, I, I would only run into Barry here and there. I, I didn't play with Barry again. Um, but he had a big falling out with, with Maury Alexander. <laughs> and uh, I saw him play with uh, a blues band at the at the pier. And, and uh, I had mentioned Maury. And he never, ever wanted to talk about Maury. I mean, Maury never came through for him as a manager. And, and he felt that Maury was like all managers, just uh, out there to take what they could get from artists. That was the last time I talked to Barry. Yet Barry, I've heard lately, has been working with Steve Stills. That's right. He's he's in a quartet with yeah. Steve. That's exactly right. Right. That, just to be clear, yeah. though, the the band, the jam band, the jam album, did not. Who actually wound up playing guitar on that? Um, Steve Miller played guitar on the stuff I, you know, I did with Steve on that with my band. Uh, of course, Dave Burt, our guitar player, played some of the guitar. I found uh, uh, Dave Mason walking down the street one day. We were going to rehearsal. I saw this guy walking down the street, and I roll my window down. I yell, "Are you Dave Mason?" And he stopped and he started stretching and looking at himself. I was, yeah, I think so. <laughs> so he came over to the window of the car, and I asked him to be on the album. So he played some guitar on it, and. Uh, I actually wrote two songs that uh, he sang. I wrote a song called Dr. Mason for him for that jam album. And we all jammed. And Muscle White played harmonica. Barry played keyboards along with Ed Roth, our keyboard guy. But the, but the, but the, I, I guess Miller my point is that the, the, uh, the, the riff between the, in the, in the Steve Miller in the, in, the, in the blues band with Miller and Goldberg, they had patched it up at that point? Or they were... They were... Well, they, you could see that there was like, there was chill in the air. And in one of the songs we did, whoop, one of the songs we did uh, ended and uh, Steve played a guitar lick. You know, the last chord hit and then Steve played this guitar lick to draw out the ending. And then Barry goes, oh yeah. He didn't go, oh yeah, but he, he then played a, you know, organ riff to try and match it. Oh, I and love Steve it. He looked at it and played another riff, and it went on, and we left it on the record. It was it was so funny. We were all just standing there. We were done with our parts, and we're watching them go back and forth. Back and forth. There was a, there was tension in the air, but they were professional enough to, um, you know, jam, and we jammed great. And uh, what can I say? Well, you know, it was it was a great album for a young. A young bunch of guys from Toronto to do. I mean, we got to meet some of people we grew up listening to and that we loved, and and got to jam with them and meet them and hang out with them, and you know, it was great. Like I love Charlie Musselwhite. He is one of the sweetest guys you'll ever meet, and what a great player. So I got to jam with him again on that Ivar Street 
reunion album for RCA, and that was fun too. We're still friends. Yeah, well, I would love to connect with Charlie too. He's one of the. I mean, it, it, it's so great. I mean, you went to. Um, you know, let's try to do part two pretty soon. I, I would like to talk. I think one of the things you brought up, you know, even though the industry itself collapsed and went in a totally wrong direction, you were had the smarts to actually go to Hollywood, be thy name. And that's probably why you cut those 16, 20 albums in how many years, you know? I mean, it was... Uh, right. It was... I was good enough to get a new deal. I, you know, I put together a unit that was good enough uh, and hooked the right people into it to get another deal with a different label. You know, it, part two should talk about my association with Artie Rip because that burned a lot of my life up. And that was that was another side of the music industry. Well, then let's do it. Let's, anyway. let, let, let's plan on yeah, that. Yeah, let's Mike. do it. All right? It was great. Right, you know, great hang. Charlie, yeah. if you want to do Charlie, um, let me contact him and see if, if he'll reach out to you. I mean, I think he would love to do it. I would, just let him know. I mean, I, I, I mean I'm mean, i 39, and I'm this is a people's history of music, and I've... You know, I've I've interviewed all the cats, including including yeah. cats like John Turk and people like from the from the Bay Area that he collaborated with way back when, with Harvey Mandel and stuff. So, uh, right. yeah, 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 man, it was you're you're the man. I mean, you're all over it, man. And uh, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna try. I'm gonna, yeah, you should be an A and R guy today. You were you, the way you love music and 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 your headspace is what went wrong with the business. The people like you that were in positions to help artists, they were kicked out in favor of the greed. And I and I really appreciate you reaching out to me. I, I had fun, and yeah, let's do part two. Let's do it, man. And uh, yeah, at, at, right. this, at this point, I get off more on the musician than the music itself. But you know, this is modern day uh, volunteered slavery. But I'm having a ball, so don't worry about it. All right, all right, good, all right. Good. I got, I'm doing a new album called Meriwether Stark with a Swedish guitar player right now. It's a hard rock album. I'm going to send you. Via uh, yeah, Facebook. let's just yeah, we'll we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just keep it up, man. Keep it happening, man. All right. All right, later I like on. reading your pieces. All right. Well, you're going to see a lot from you today now because they're all over. are going to be all uh -huh. blasting all over the place, dude. You dropped a lot uh -huh. of knowledge today, especially about when things went south in the industry. It's extremely important to talk to younger peeps about that because they have to know where they came from to know where they're going. So I appreciate it, man. Right. I appreciate you. Love Thank always. You Thank you, Neil. Love to you, man. Later, man. Bye. Bye. So heavy cat, Neil Merriweather, cutting his teeth up in Toronto, made his way down to the City of Angels and uh, still doing his thing in Vegas. Uh, Jake Feinberg show, a lot going on this week. We'll be back tomorrow with Carl Cherry in studio, drummer personified. We got Facho coming up. We got part two with Paul Boudreaux. We got Domingo Ballantin, and we got some serious, serious gospel soul in the studio this weekend. So a whole lot coming up and probably a few more surprises. Uh, in the meantime, we'll rejoin PTSD in progress. People tell me all the time I look like I'm in my late 20s or early 30s. 